Criminal Magic, Chapter 19. Friday, 8.42, GMT-8. Acting against consciousness, I was driven because I wanted to be like others. I was afraid of what was wild and indecent in me. By and large, still is pleased with what he has inherited. As a union, this is a highly functional, albeit hazardous, one to have made. Still has absorbed all the mighty cerebral density that Kohler embodied. No casual observer would ever even recognize that there was anything wrong with the man they once knew as Rafe. Still has no vanity in his exercise of dominion over this apparatus. Kohler has lent him a durable identity, one whose bona fides, both intellectual and financial, are profoundly respectable. And in return, Still has infused this lamentably manipulable shell with the power of vision and magical mystery that are the rightful domain of the Cayman. By the time Still took possession of Kohler, he was already projecting himself into the escape plan that would carry him away from the blood-saturated ground of recent failures. Jaguar. He knows that he has seen Jaguar face to face. They had been deceived indeed. It was not the shaman, the woman, but the other, the one with the tall woman, the one called Answer. He's the practical reality of Still's ancient enemy. Still promises himself a day of reckoning with that one. Looking into the belly of the cloud swollen with burden of moisture, Still closes his eyes and summons the wind child. A vortex sparks into being, swirls, tightening into a sharp twist inside his head and the stout current of canyon drafts that have until this moment whipped hair into his face and tugged at his wet clothing abruptly drops to nothing. He sequesters an enormous chest full of air and blows it back at the sky from the bottom of his lungs. The low-lying clouds move away in a matter of seconds, leaving still to bathe in a wash of warm sunlight. The rarity of eclipse reversed. With access to all of Rafe's carefully deployed hidden assets, and the author's intimate knowledge of how each element of the money trail related to the others, Still was able to disappear into the artificial mists of assumed identities, numbered accounts, and cash-pliable officialdom that is the Latin America, formerly developed by the Nazis, and appropriated by entrepreneurs of all stripes. A middle-of-the-night dash north in a stolen jeep to a private airstrip was followed by a brief visit to the secret lab outside Maracaibo. Secure in the knowledge that all the necessary information had been transferred to the new remote site, still moved into the storage area and shorted the intruder alert system, sparking a highly flammable repository of magnetic tape. He watched the fire for a few minutes to make sure it would grow to devastating proportions without interference, before he sauntered outdoors into the stultifying off-gas stench of the lakeside night and headed toward the next station on his way north to a new life. Although he employs the hands and identity of a man well-schooled in the ways of living, still maintains a high level of interest in the actual means by which business in this alien world is conducted. He has, after all, no practical experience with the modern world. Language, hygiene, culture, monetary exchange, male-female relations, the uncountable individuated tracks of daily life, all flow seamlessly through the Kohler identity, providing still with an unceasing exposure to the practical complexities of a life he has only envisioned. The airplane ride from Venezuela to Panama was a source of profound wonder for Still. His only experience with flight had always been within the context of magical movement, but Amirador, the mystical overflight and dreams used to envision the future, is nothing akin to the sensation of floating above the earth in a seat protected from all that moves around you. If it were not for the calm physical reaction flowing through Kohler's body, Still would have been terrified by the experience. Food still disgusts him. The Shortwalker's idea of sustenance, spicy, greasy, dried out, burdened by an overpoweringly pungent layer of spices and herbs, and so much sugar. His first taste of coffee, a ritual of Kohler's, left such a terrible ringing in his body that he vomited the acrid black water into a rain-swollen gutter. 
but still knows that such lapses in discipline cannot be tolerated. In keeping with this awareness, he turned back into the cafe and demanded a double latte. This time, he sat still, pretending to read a newspaper until his bowels reacted to the acid brew and forced him into the bathroom. This too is a shocking experience, to which he has not yet adjusted. Evacuating into a bowl, wiping your ass with paper from a roll, made from a tree, and flushing perfectly good water into the void, all of it fascinates and mystifies him. How have the short walkers managed to survive for so long? The part of him that is Kohler knows the answers, and learning at this rate might be overwhelming if still we're not suffused with the spirit of his magical totem, the Cayman. But precisely because he is the living lens for the enormity of the Cayman spirit, each minute still spends in the vessel of Kohler accelerates his ferocious integration with the inner and outer realities that apply to the new melded existence of his magical being. And now they are coming for me, still thinks. His clothing is very nearly dry. Approximately an hour has passed. The concept of time, yet another troublesome convention he is having to adapt to the open architecture of his mind to accepting. Since he began basking in the narrowly focused spotlight of sun that continues to radiate on his location. I'm ready for them. I am Kohler. It amuses him, this thought of being someone, someone other than still, the voice and embodiment of the single mind of the Longbones. But that is the past, for now. There are no more of us, of me. He had sensed a frail signal on the unified net of mind that is common to his people, but that was days ago, and he feels certain it was only the lingering signal of a dying warrior, alone. This in itself is the most profoundly affecting change still has experienced. It has been well over 300 years, according to the counting system used by Kohler, since he has experienced this state of being. To stand isolated in his own mind, without the constant, chromatically alive sensation of others' energy, is a dazzling and strange experience. Since his detachment still has experienced a feeling that pervades his entire being, and whose precise nature eludes the prodigious analytic power of Kohler's mind, on all sides of still, foul weather continues unabated. Less than a hundred meters away, he watches as a steep hillside, treeless in the wake of a recent timber harvest, submits to the pummeling deluge and begins to hunch and slip, the shallow topsoil gathering itself atop a dense clay substrate for a brief rush down into the water flashing through the canyon narrows below. A mobile phone sounds in his pocket. He reaches for it with a lazy relaxedness only recently acquired. It took days for him to adapt to the sudden, unexpected intrusion of the alarm attached to these phones. Today, he no longer registers surprise. For one thing, he has tuned himself to those who know his number and so he literally feels them about to call. On top of that, he has simply taken on the change at any speed, transformational qualities of Kohler. This ability amuses him. It is, in his mind, a practical display of magical adaptability that this society has named change. Yes, yes I see you, I'm here, come. He pockets the device. How is it that these people embrace so much that they have no real knowledge of? It is the obedience they pay to their gods of plastic and wire, electrons and petroleum. The jeopardy in all this is immediately recognizable, creating vulnerabilities for themselves. Fools. He recognizes the need to humble oneself to powers beyond one's comprehension, but to him, this seems such a flimsy sacrifice of the self. These gods are nothing. But this is why the plan will work. The weakness of distraction is so easily exploited. He looks down at the road and sees a large white van approaching from the west end of the canyon. The curving downhill road makes it possible to see for some distance, and so he has to wait another three minutes or so before the van pulls up beside him. Before the vehicle has come to a full stop, Still is standing next to the driver's door. 
the window winds down and a clean-shaven man in his early 20s throws an arm out. Good to see you, Dr. Kohler. Same to you, Jean. These words slip out of Still's mouth with the ease of a man long practiced in addressing underlings with the seamless civility exercised by higher caste individuals in the management of their lessers. Man, the weather's like really foul everywhere but right here you got the sun punching through smack dab where you're standing. The driver's face breaks into a grin of amazement, displaying a front tooth inlaid with a silver star. You got it going on, man, like magic or some shit. He turns to the passenger, a young person whose sex is not easily identified, and nods. The androgynous rider's head bobs in agreement. No doubt. Fucking magic. You ready to go? Still looks quizzical. His voice is a transmitter, carrying all the authority he could possibly need, as he says, Yes. He prepares to leave his car and get in with the two young lab workers, and he must deliberately bridle the sudden urge to attack them, to rend and sever them into flecks of what once was. This is not the first time since his escape began that he has felt the archaic reach of action prompt him to act in such a way against shortwalkers who have crossed his path. But this is no time to wreak vengeance. That time will surely present itself downstream, and so he dips his head toward his shoulder to hide his face for a moment from the pair. It is best they not see the thirst for blood, the flush of anger flooding the capillaries of his face with the red glare of suppressed hatred. He draws a deep breath, quiets himself with an act of will, rubs his nose across the back of his hand, and gets into the van. Friday, 9.52, GMT-8 Sleeplessness has become a way of life. You best get yourself down on a bed somewhere more than once a week, or you're just gonna tip over and be no good to nobody, Pill complains at Collie as he pitches a gum wrapper at an empty shoe parked a few feet away. The wad of foil caroms off the tongue and bounces back toward Pill, landing handily at his feet. Looks like you're not choosing basketball as a serious pursuit, huh? Yeah, what is that, your 11th straight miss? Even if I was asleep, I bet I could bag that hoop easier than you, boy. Collie smirks at his friend as he leans down and snags the little pellet of paper. He leaps from the worn depression of his chair, swings around, and pops the tiny ball over his shoulder. It falls directly into the shoe and rolls out of sight under the vamp. Two with the hook, he exults. All right, Captain, chill out, will ya? A man's ego can only take so much. Pillhead John sprawls back in his upright chair, and a display like that does nothing for your reputation, I'm just saying. So where were we? First on the agenda is what's going to happen with the resolution for civic protection that's been circulating these past few days. People think it's a product of a citizens' action committee over in Dow's province. Nobody really knows who wrote the thing. I guess that's good, right? I don't think it'd be such a good deal if you were hooked up with the idea like putting together a formal civic self-protection cadre. Yeah, probably not. Collie latches onto a round-backed wooden chair and slings his arms over the back, now facing his friend. Listen, the politics of dancing on that project will work out, and we'll end up with the means to do a better job fending off these Hindu incursions. Nobody here's lame enough to miss the wisdom in taking care of what that little you've salvaged doesn't get taken from you by the same Cretans who put you here in the first place. All right, says Pill, so that's cooking away. Folks over in security are putting out support messaging and such, but what are we going to do with the Hindu snitches we know are working inside? People are talking. Following that logic, says Kali, why don't we just mount up and go to work for the thugs? He shrugs. You might catch me dreaming about suffering some of these turncoats, but it's better if we feed them disinformation so their minders still think their intel's intact. No argument here, boss, Pillhead John says with a shrug. I told you, I don't like that, Cully scowls his displeasure. Hey, you let off aim and fill and such at me, and I'll haul down on the Imperial boss thing, all right? Meantime, we have to get some construction people working at the north end. The influx of newcomers is not letting up, and they're getting some folks a little crabby on the social side. Understandable, Collie nods. It's hard to maintain a generous and open spirit with the wolf at the door. 
We'll divert some resources from utility income to fund to cover the development costs and see what we can get facilities to come up with out of the slop we divert them from the pharma side. I sort of already allocated a little from that kitty in anticipation of your coming to that idea on your own. Hope you don't mind, says Pill. That's why we call people like you entrepreneurs, Collie laughs as he stretches his arms overhead. Ah, oh, man, I'm beat. I would sleep for a week if I could sleep for shit. What about Hedda's suggestion, Pill says. Hypnosis could be a real help, from what she's saying. All that stuff about higher nervous function interfering with your serotonin, dopamine production, sounded like it might be on the right wavelength to me. Uh-huh, moving right along. Collie stands up again, combing his fingers through thick black hair and drawing his hand down over a chin covered with the stubble of several razor-free days. Where are we going with the EEPROM technology? For me, that's a big deal. We got data mining capacity already, and it's clear even without listening to Hedda's input that this pump and read capacity could really easily be adapted to far more dangerous uses. Yeah, you'd have to be asylum certified not to catch the weapons potential, Pill says. How far off is the day when somebody adapts the circuitry so they could just drive a person's thoughts, craft their actions, maybe program them outright? I'm with you, pal. That's some goosebump raising shit, which I want to point out, we are right in the middle of. Well, as the good doctor remarked, this is not an abstract exercise, Kali says. There are multiple and potentially severe practical consequences to even what we've done so far, humanitarian reasoning aside. The idea that we plumbed one person's skull and are thinking of doing it again, this time to someone who definitely is not going to be volunteering, isn't that all the evidence we need to see this technology is dangerous? And we think we're the good guys, Pill says, as he bends to retrieve his foil ball from the shoe. So what if another party like the Indu boys get their hands on this device or its inventor? Shit, I just want to go back to a time when things weren't so head-cracking difficult. Like, uh, 20,000 BC? Kali snipes, shaking his head as he laughs. Oh yeah, things were ever so simple then. Freezing your ass off, running into caves to get away from enormous carnivores that were everywhere lurking in hopes of getting a little man-chow. Plague, no tools, camping 24-7, neighbors stabbing you to get at your female. Yeah, good old days, right? An unusually discreet knock on the door breaks in on his riff. Who is it? Calls Pillhead John. Dr. Bjornley? See, man, it's like summoning the devil, Pill whispers as he turns to let the visitor in. Can't mention the fucker's name without it being turned into a summons. The devil, is it? Dr. Bjornley says as she nods a hello on her way through the door. Collie and Pill are shocked silent. Don't be alarmed, gentlemen. My hearing is famously acute. May I sit? She settles onto the couch. I've been called much worse and deserted. I take it since I was on your minds, it comes as no surprise that our joint enterprise was on mine. Um, what John was actually saying, Hedda, was that we have to recognize our responsibilities to control the scanning technology you're developing. Control the access, you mean, the senior scientist nods. Yes, it's clear even with the limited experimental results we've derived from our work with Dana that far more nefarious uses could be made of this capacity to step into the mind. There is a sort of... She hesitates, one hand rising off its place atop her knee to float briefly in the air. A magical aspect to it, isn't there? Spookily close to being right out of a science fiction novel, is all Kali can get out. I have to tell you, sometimes when we're reviewing the images we've mined out of that woman's unconscious storage, I'm just very nervous about what we are playing with. Must have been how Oppenheimer and his crew felt up in Chicago during the war, nods Pillhead. The stiffness of his movement conveys more of his concern than his expression. Very scary, developing a weapon with the power to transform the world in seconds. Very scary. I couldn't agree more, John. The older woman has the air of severity about her, like a cloak of authority. It seems to me, Hedda stirs the air with her left forefinger, 
that we ourselves are in a similar position. We have in fact identified and employed the base elements of a technical apparatus that could, as you say, transform the world. I am also quite certain you two have projected the other possible permutations on its employment. Matter of fact, Doctor, that was exactly what we were talking about when you came in. A case has arisen which will demand that we use this new tool of yours for humanitarian purposes, but there's a catch. Hedda looks unfazed. What is the nature of the catch? Involuntary intrusion. The words drop out of Collie's mouth and seem to take up a physical space in the area between the three of them. Vulcan and Epimetheus had a project once, Hedda says cryptically. Ah, here we go. Billhead steadies himself for the tour. The specific byway of the abstract, this is actually the part of science he likes best, the detour through disciplines that eventually leads to a real discovery. Homily, metaphor, epigram, always best when found on tombstones. He settles into his chair waiting for the story to unfold. Right, Kali says, and Vulcan made Pandora, the very first real live human girl. Of course, Hedda nods approvingly. And all the gods got together and gave the young and beautiful Pandora gifts. According to one version, the gifts were all the miseries of the world, but there was another version of the story. Correct, Kali, correct, Hedda says. According to the later version, all the gifts were the pleasures of the world. Either way, there was no place to put them, so Jupiter gave her a box to keep them in, and as we know later, Epimetheus, in a fit of epically bad decision-making, opens the box, and the human world is left forevermore occupied by the spirits of evil. Or, if we accept the alternate version, all the good beings escape into the atmosphere and are lost. Either way, the august woman straightens her shoulders, not an optimal outcome for mankind. With the exception of hope, Pillhead feels compelled to cough out that one overlooked piece. Hope sticks in the bottom of the box, remember? That's a pretty significant save, I'd say. Hedda nods her recognition of the value of the omission, and continues speaking. It follows that if we are like Vulcan and Jupiter, we will have to deal with the danger of an anxious Epimetheus setting loose the contents of our box. These people, the ones who are suggesting we deliberately break into a human mind against that person's will, are they taking Epimetheus' place in things? Or is there an overwhelmingly beneficial reason for taking such an action? Can the needs of many overbalance the will of the one? Uh, no disrespect, Doctor, Kali says. I really appreciate the analogy. I also believe that what you're suggesting is a matter of moment, but the box has been open a long time. Look around you. At best, what we have here is the second version of the gift, the one with the little hope stuck up in the corner. Kali stands and starts pacing. Jesus, I'm the one who's been developing the scanners and electrical probing monitors for this new technology. Sleep and I were not overly familiar before this whole thing started, and now, between concerns about the town and my preoccupation with the ethical, practical, and political ramifications of our psych lab work... Let's not get all twisted, Pillhead injects his mild annoyance at the direction things have headed. He's been sitting quietly watching the pressure cooker of his friend's head begin to steam, and he realizes he's been biting his own nails. Collie spins around so he's facing his two associates. Listen... The guy we saw in Dana's memory, Rave Kohler, I knew him. Years ago, we had some very brief, very uncomfortable dealings with each other when I was involved with the early formation of the Collectives. The guy was a dedicated environmentalist, but there was something off. I got worried. Because of what I saw, I got in touch with the regional coordinator for the Collective to give her a heads up. She might want to be careful if she and a couple friends of mine she's traveling with ran into him. Turns out, the warning was a little on the late side. They ran into him, all right, and he is up to something. And whatever it is seems linked to research into longevity. On top of that, his work is somehow closely connected to a ritual sacrificial tribe called the Cayman Cult. There was an attack on my friends, and some of their group, as well as many members of this cult, were killed. 
Kohler's connection with the Cayman cult has been established, and he's now disappeared. My associates believe he's on his way to the Pacific Northwest. They'll be arriving soon, and when they get here, they're going to be bringing the sole surviving member of this cult for us to interrogate. Are you sure? Hedda begins to question. Please, Hedda, wait for me to finish. I have no desire to keep secrets from you two, and it's important that you both understand my reasoning for even considering what I'm proposing doing with our new discovery. It appears there may be some significant link between a secret research project the Collective has discovered and a network of financial and corporate entities established by Kohler in Oregon, California, Washington, and B.C. Mixing what we've derived from Dana's recovered memories with what my friends have discovered in South America, it looks like Kohler, and perhaps others, are planning to manufacture some kind of longevity drug which only works in conjunction with the serum elements of juvenile blood. Wait, what?! Even Pillhead John, whose adolescent years were spent indulging in sci-fi fantasy magazines and pot-smoking as an outlet for a frustrated male libido, can't contain his incredulity. Are you seriously telling us a mad scientist is coming to town and that his goal is to suck the blood of innocence so he can mix it with some herbs and shit and live forever? Nah, man. That can't be right. It's your sleep thing. See, just like I was saying, you don't sleep for weeks and then you flip out. As he says this, Pillhead, whose hands are jammed in his pockets, surreptitiously pinches his thigh. Nah, you gotta be shitting me. What's the date? Is it April 1st? Holy fuck, I mean, this shit here is getting out of hand. I want to follow this down a bit, if I may, Hedda says, determined not to lose her sense of balance to indiscipline. This is her milieu, the ragged edge of speculative possibility where the theoretical perhaps dominates the known. Let us say for the moment that we step around the ethical and moral quagmire and limit our inquiry to addressing the practical and theoretical aspects of this interrogation. Collie's happy to cede the reins for control in this discussion to the elder stateswoman. Yeah, I'm listening. Collie's flat tone and exhausted demeanor are all the permission the doctor needs to impose by-the-numbers rule of hypothetical inquiry onto the exchange. Let us say, for the sake of argument, that we gain control of a subject such as the one you say is coming. First among our considerations will be the question of access to an unwilling brain. We should be mindful of the fact that this type of extractive effort is in no way like the work we did on the pusher. That was a purely extractive procedure in which we required nothing of the subject beyond his physical presence. In consideration of our applied technology, on the other hand, we can say that up to this point, everything, the means and methodology of access and extraction, has been used on the acquiescence of our experimental model. Dana let us step into her subconscious and muck around, and we're not going to have that luxury with the next player, Pillhead says, just wanting to push through everything as quickly as possible. Patience is not his strong suit. As you say, John, more or less, Hedda agrees vigorously. What we have learned to date is that we can use certain so-called truth serums to relax the subconscious in a way that lets us prompt a susceptible state in the subject. A primary question in this new case will be, how do we break through a concerted will in order to gain access to an unconscious that is not deliberately disordered as a defense? Doesn't that presume that the subject knows what we're after? Kali asks. After all, if the subject is rendered unconscious and kept in that state, that person would have no ability to marshal defenses, right? Yeah, Pillhead joins in. Make for the main stem, see how that redoubt holds up under questioning. We just have to make damn sure the folks who have charge over the subject keep its cerebral function at a minimum while in transit. Very astute, Hedda acknowledges the incisive attack of the problem. Can we ensure this will be done, Kali? Uh, as soon as we're finished here, I'll be back in contact with the collective, Kali assures. Fine, Hedda says, fine. That serves as a good starting point. With that, she rises from her seat and bows slightly at the waist. There are many technical questions that she must begin to catalog and sort through before this discussion can take on a more coherent shape, and it's time to go to work. 
Gentlemen, if you can assure the subject remains intellectually neutral during transport, I believe we will have made a substantial beginning to our inquiry. For now, I will retire and consider the ramifications of our chat. And with that, she shows herself from the room. Short and not exactly sweet, huh? Pillhead shrugs. But hey, what the hell? Sometimes bitter tastes right, too. It's what coffee's all about. He gets up, heading back to the practical commerce of his own labs. Yeah, Collie waves and distinctly unenergetic goodbye to his friend. We had to start somewhere. I'll make the call and make sure Coordinator and the others get the item here as close to dead as possible. As the door swings shut behind Pillhead John, Collie decides to get on the horn to Coordinator as soon as possible. No time to waste, and there's some hangover that was left unsaid in that last conversation. All right now, he thinks as he hunkers down over the keyboard and begins typing in the contact cipher. We'll find out what their game really is. Close behind those mundane and practical considerations, in the tattered frame of exhaustion which colors all ordinary machinations of politics, there is a shade of nuance, one informed by the ethereal aspects of Don Pedro, that provides an extra mental level of consideration, putting things in order, and understanding the earthly relationship of one player to another. From this serene vantage, unencumbered by physical and practical concerns, Kali's subconscious rolls the flawless Cartesian oval of a conceptual egg in its celestial palm. Here, in the remote meditative preserve of spirit, within agile precincts of metaphysical possibility, his soul enjoys the humor of oblique relationships, all points evenly related, despite seeming imbalanced. One must be willing to consider the possibility of new variations. Once the desire for fixed points has been jettisoned, after all seductive allure of the present lies abandoned, along with utilities, the impossible of possibility may reveal itself. For the moment, Kali's mind lets go, releasing its grasp on the world of foment and managed disarray that constitutes his daily struggle. During this brief interlude, his mind traverses a universe alight with the improbable and unmanageable, and he enjoys the rest that is kin to magic. As mystical hands turn the soil of his mind, readying the soul for the seeds of the unlikely. We will be back next week with Chapter 20 of Criminal Magic. We hope you will join us. If you are enjoying our podcast and stories, please leave a rating and review to help others find us as well. Thank you for listening.